capable of absolutely incredible things with the right tools, strategies, and mindset in place. I'm your host, Victoria Smith, and I am a stress reduction coach who is all about helping you significantly reduce your stress so that you've got more time and energy for whatever it is that matters most to you. Now, today on the podcast, I am over the moon to be joined by Shan Boudram, also known as Shan Booty, depending on where where you know her. Shan is a sexologist, a YouTuber, and the author of the newly released book, The Game of Desire. Now, this book is so fascinating because she's giving women the tools to empower themselves in dating. And whether you're single or you're in a relationship, I think there's some real gems in this book, many of which, and we talk about it in the episode, but many of these strategies, which I intend to bring into my own life. Now, I first discovered Chan in a Jubilee video about polyamorous relationships, and her take was fascinating. I found that she was so captivating on camera, she knew her stuff. And so when I Googled her, I actually discovered that she has this huge history of videos out there that are uh, on YouTube or on her channel that are incredible. They're informative. They're really educational, all about sex, relationships, and your body. Really interesting. I highly recommend that you check them out. So in this episode, Shan and I talk about what exactly a sexologist does, body dysmorphia, how you sort of get around your head when and get out of your head and into your body, how to connect with yourself first, and she shares her take on having better sex. Oh, and of course, we talk about the book as well. I had such a blast in this conversation, so I really hope that you enjoy it as well. Now, I was so lucky to be gifted a copy of her book, The Game of Desire, and I really want to pass that on. So I'm just coming to a close on it now, finishing it up. It's incredible. And if you are a listener in North America, I would love, love, love to give away a copy. So what I'm going to do is you head on over to my Instagram, which is at stresslessladies. I'll link to the exact post in the show notes for today, which are at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast dash one to one, or the link will actually be in the description of wherever you're listening to this podcast. But the easiest thing is to head on over to Instagram. My handle is at stresslessladies and look for the post where I'm holding up the book. So that is the one where you can find all the details to enter again, North America. uh, So I'll be doing the giveaway for a few days. Again, all the information will be there. And I hope to be able to send this off to one of you lucky readers listeners, readers, both. Anyways, okay. Now, the Girl Choice Life podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is powered by ATB. So the annual Calgary Pride Festival is coming up uh, end of August, so August 23rd to September 2nd. And ATB are a big supporter of the LGBTQ community. Now, they take pride in all Albertans, and that means standing up for what they know is right in the workplace, in communities, and alongside their community partners. So they support Firefly in Schools, an LGBTQ plus awareness and anti-homophobia program in Calgary and area schools, and also Reading with Royalty at the Calgary Public Library, a family-friendly storytime program led by local drag queens and kings. It's an incredible program, so I highly recommend that you can check all of this stuff out at atb.com. Now, I do want to quickly tell you about another member of the Alberta Podcast Network. 
which is Modern Manhood. Now, we've talked about them before. It's a series of interviews towards understanding the many different views of masculinity. So this is hosted by German Villegas. Now, I highly recommend that you check out some of his recent episodes. Uh, Episode 84 and 85 is all about masculinity and the media. And I found them to be really, really interesting. So you can find those at modernmanhood.org. Okay, so again, if you want to win a copy of Shan's book, just head on over to Instagram at Stressless Ladies. Look for the picture with her book and all the details to enter will be there. Okay, without further ado, let's head into the interview. Well, thank you so much, Shan, for joining the podcast. We're so pleased to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I was waiting for like this long intro, but that was great. <laughs> we I record the intro separately. I always think yes. it's weird to read people's bios while they're listening to themselves. Yeah. And first of all, I like hate, I think the bios should be shortened to like two sentences. Yeah. It's okay for, I guess, for a reader, but when you're reading it out loud, like, the listener's just like, I really don't care. And this feels like bragging. So <laughs> I actually yeah. like that we're just jumping right into it. So let's do it. How's, how's your morning? It's going pretty well. Well, it's raining here in Canada, but uh, I'm sure you've got much better weather in LA than we do, but we are surviving. It's actually cloudy right now. So I feel like a sister to you. We are we're not as far as you think. Well, and you are a fellow Canadian. I'm so pleased to discover that. I am a fellow Canadian, and um, yes, happy Canada Day to us. Today is, oh, I was going to say yesterday, today is the 4th of July, but it's not the 4th of July today, so that's okay. When people are, when we record it, it's the 4th of July. But Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I first saw you on one of the Jubilee videos where it's like the meet in the middle where you were talking, where it was like, can you love multiple people at once? And wow, yes. Yeah, and then I discovered like the holy treasure trove that is your YouTube channel. So that was really exciting. But you flirt, thank you. I'm super curious. I maybe just to like set the ground for everyone who's listening to this, you're a sexologist. And Correct. I, I think a lot of people don't know exactly what that means. So maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, a sexologist is the study of sex as it relates to biology, criminology, psychology, sociology. I think it's easiest to think of a sexologist to sex as a nutritionist is to food. Um, It's the study of sex as it relates to people's lives in various areas. As a sexologist, kind of similar to a nutritionist, you can work in a variety of different fields, a clinical setting, obviously. You can write curriculum. uh, You can have a private practice, a brick and mortar. I went to school for journalism. I'm not as a Canadian. I don't. I don't know if you know Centennial College, but um, that's like where I went to school for journalism. And so that was my first foray into the field of sex education because they say write what you know. And I was like, this is a topic that I really know um, and that I I really want to share a perspective on. And so that's how I began. So my mission from the start of my sexology career, I didn't become a sexologist until 2000 and you think. 17 or 18, no, 2016. Um, and then I obviously graduated from school 2008. So some time in between for me to just really like get the hours in. But my mission has always been to spread the message to as many people as possible and to make the message accessible to everyone. And you particularly do focus on like your very first book laid focused on young people's experiences. And your newest book coming out, Game of Desire, is that more... Again, younger people, single people? The the target of the... So essentially the book, The Game of Desire, is me 
working with six women over the span of six months to basically try to revamp their love life. And really and truly, it's about their life as connectors. So these are people who are massively successful in every area, but when it comes to intimate relationships, and we all have that friend who just really can't figure it out. And we're like, we don't know why, like they're great. They have an awesome apartment. They know the lyrics to Hamilton and (laughs) they do super great winged eyeliner. They just can't really figure it out. And so those are the women that I sought out. I interviewed 300 women last year to choose the six that I was going to work with. And so they range from 24 to 37, whereas in with Laid, it was strictly for people under the age of 24. So as I've grown and my demographic has grown, yeah, I'm speaking to an older audience who is thinking about intimate connections in a much more long-term way. And it was, uh, you shared some information with me before this, which I'll, I'll include in the show notes, but the, the quick video that you shared of the women's experiences before and after, like, these are truly transformational. Uh, it's a truly transformational process these women have gone through, like the confidence is through the roof. Yes, I'm so, so proud of that video. I'm so proud of them. Like, we genuinely are still friends to this day. And it was such let me tell you, Victoria, like mm-hmm. I genuinely started this book and I was like, this is a six week course, six weeks and you're going to be a masterful seducer, six weeks and you're going to go out there and feel like you are on top of the dating world. And six weeks easily transferred into six months, which has probably by now been a year because I'm still in touch. And like one of them, for example, is in a relationship and I make a joke with her. They're like, we're a thruple because <laughs> I work with her with all her relationship problems. I'm like, you know, her partner doesn't know that I'm in their relationship, but I'm in their relationship. <laughs> so I, I definitely learned a lot through the experience of them, real people. And sometimes we forget, you know, because we're, we do the work every day. We talk to people, we learn, we read books, or I know, for example, for myself, I've been in the sex education space for 13 years. And so in my mind, you hear this stuff once and you can apply it. But in truth, this is brand new information for you. There's no way in six weeks you're transforming yourself. So these women, it was obviously an incubator of change, one. And number two, it was a a lot of um, invested time and work with them. So I hope people who buy the book don't just read it once read it once for pleasure, but then dog tag it like crazy and go back to those lessons over and over again and try practicing things slowly, bit by bit. You don't have to force yourself to get to a dramatic after result in six weeks. I think it's a lot nicer when it's a slow burn as it was with the women in the group. Yeah. And I have a feeling I know the answer to this question, but I'm just curious if you can go into detail. How much of our challenges with sex or relationships is in our heads versus in our bodies? Ooh, uh, well, shoot, you go first, and then I'm going to piggyback off you. Like, I I think it's 95% in our heads. Like, I'm sure there's, so I do stress reduction coaching, and it is so much more about what you're interpreting versus what's actually happening to you. Now, I'm sure, like, erectile dysfunction, all those kinds of things are the physical things that are actually happening. But I would imagine most people come to you, and it's feelings of insecurity or not enough for all of that, which is harder to deal with, but more important. Yeah, I mean, there's a mix of both. I mean, our, I was saying this to someone the other day about, I have a video about erectile dysfunction that just came out yesterday, so I've never felt more equipped in my life to talk about it if you <laughs> wanted to. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to the body, like 99.9% of your bodily functions that help you to survive, you have no hand in, right? Like our body, we think we're in control of our body. Like 
our body is the master of us. Like I don't know why my veins are pumping blood right now, but they are. Or why my heart is beating. I don't know what neurons are firing. There's so much happening behind the scenes. And so there is something to be said about the fact that there's a great mystery of the body and that we're not in as much control as we'd like to believe. And sometimes when our bodies aren't functioning well, like one of my pet peeves, I think, when I speak to women who haven't orgasmed or don't orgasm with a partner and they're like, I know it's just me because I'm not relaxing enough. I'm like, that's so annoying. Like, it's not like, I think that the, the onus is always put on women. Like it's your fault. Somehow you're doing something wrong where it's like, maybe your partner just hasn't learned how to please you. Or maybe mm-hmm. you haven't given yourself the space to understand how your body works. Maybe it's not that you're just like too much of a prude or too locked in your head or that you just haven't stimulated yourself in the ways that work. So I, w- I would say around 50, 50. Okay. Majority of it is a, is a mystery of the body. And like, Again, like the body is the master of us. And the other half of it, yeah, that there's absolutely, we live in a world that capitalism is based off of insecurities. It's a system that wants to tell you you're not good enough so that you constantly feel like you have to buy more. And so if you're of this world and you're getting those messages and you're being bombarded why this you're not enough message, yeah, that's going to also bleed into your sex life. Well, and and like you're saying, all the messages we're being bombarded with, with like whether it's hardcore porn or softcore porn on television like we're getting this message of what sex looks like and if if our sex lives don't look like that i'm sure a lot of us are internalizing that as something is wrong we are doing it wrong oh absolutely i think like 90 percent of any questions that you probably answer or any um educator or person the wellness space answers is somewhere focused around the am i normal you know like I feel this. Am I normal? I don't experience pleasure this way. Am I normal? Um, I really hate X. Am I normal? I really love Y. Am I normal? And so that's because we have such a very specific narrative that is told in the media. There's a very linear one size fits all love story that has been shared a million times. And so if you don't directly relate to that love story or relate to that sex story, then you find yourself feeling like, well, there's something wrong with me because I don't see my version depicted. One of the things that like came up recently in the news is like the prevalency of labiaplasty. Oh, wow. Where okay. A lot more young girls are getting plastic surgery on their labia to make it smaller or make it look more, as they call them, designer vaginas. And there was so much judgment, you know, you hear from people on talk shows or people in general, like this generation's so insecure, this, that, and the third. And I was like, do you have a, a labia artwork in your house? Have you ever sat down with your daughter and said, this is the variations that um, labias can come in, that vulvas can look like, and you're not abnormal? Because if we never see it in movies and TV, because if you show uh, a vulva on TV, like it becomes a whole different rating, higher than R. We never really see anything else other than the basic, you know, small-lipped labia in pornography. And so as a person, you literally think you're the only person who has large lips or who has darker lips. There's nowhere else do we really like reinforce positive images or um, diverse images of vulvas. And so that's a natural byproduct of that. And I think that speaks more to the work that we have to do as a society versus the work the individual has to do to love themselves. Yeah, for sure. It feels like it also ties into body positivity, like not just size of your body, but every different variation like you're talking about. Exactly. So I'm curious, uh, on porn then, is it like, I hear a lot of people on podcasts right now talking about how porn is like detrimental to a relationship. What are you, you're the expert. What do you, what are your thoughts? 
I believe that majority of things in life are neutral. You know, sex is neutral. Love is neutral. Food is neutral. It's how you interact with it that's good or bad. Porn is neutral. It's how you interact with it that's good or bad. The kinds of porn you're seeking out, how your art is imitating your life. Um, those are the things that can make it a negative experience. But on the flip side, porn does a lot of incredible things in relationships and porn can be a saving grace. Um, it can be an exciter. It can be a way to spice things up again. It can be a way for people to learn new things or even see different body types, or see different activities to see what it is that their fetish is actually depicted somewhere. So they're like, oh my gosh, I'm not a complete freak. So there is there's two sides to every coin. I just think it's how the individual interacts with it. The unfortunate thing is accessible mainstream porn that is free tends to be pretty sex negative and pretty heteronormative. And that's because it's a multi-billion dollar industry for men where they're like the, so they basically, they are the programmers, right? Like they control the kind of man who consumes that kind of porn. Uh, It's what they are looking for that the rest of us have at our fingertips. And so that also adjusts with us saying yes to more like Erica Lust, for example. She is a feminist porn director. She makes beautiful, stunning porns that are based on women's fantasies. And they're hot and they are interesting and you learn, um, but they're also a turn on. So if we're saying yes to more Erica Lusts and investing in good porn, Erica has this really great quote where she's like, if you were on the street and they were giving away free hot dogs, wouldn't you want to know why? She's like, why don't you question why your porn is free? Why aren't you paying for that? You wouldn't eat a free hot dog that had no explanation. So <laughs> really ask yourself, why are you ingesting this free porn? So she's her whole thing is like investing in the kind of uh, kink content that you're looking for. And so that might be the answer to people who have a negative opinion to porn and or maybe just go without it. Kind of depends on what you're into. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting way to think about it that I would have never considered. Where are you on the porn spectrum? Uh, I find I f- I'm fine with it. Like it it serves a purpose for me. Uh, I think my relationship with it is positive. Yeah, but then you hear, but it's like you're saying, like you get influenced by what everyone else is saying of, well, it can be detrimental to a relationship. And I was like, I feel perfectly fine with my relationship. Right. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're happy. We're in a good place. So everything's, you know, so it's. It, yeah, but you wonder then if you're doing something wrong, if all these other experts say that it's, yeah, it's interesting. So, Like, you know what's detrimental? Cheese. Cheese is so <laughs> detrimental, but it depends on the user, right? Like, if you can find a healthy consumption rate with cheese or a healthy relationship with cheese, but it's like a, it's an awful product. Like, there's no nutritional value in it. It's like decayed milk. It's like so heavy in calories and it's an awful product, but I mean, I would never call cheese awful. Cheese has a great purpose in my life, but I <laughs> have to be responsible with my relationship with cheese. That is fair. Yeah. So one of my favorite things um, about coaching or counseling or working with experts is is the questions that they ask that can sort of unlock wisdom that you have within yourself. So I'm curious... Uh, are there certain questions that you tend to ask your clients or, or people who are coming to you from se- for sex advice that really can be game changer questions for them? Hmm. I actually spent, I have like one hour sessions with people. When you pre-order, if I have a copy yep. of my book, um, which it's out now, so you don't have to do that anymore. But um, 
it, when I do, I start, I usually spend the first 40 minutes just listening. And the question that drives the first 40 minutes is like, give me a history of intimacy in your life. And when I say intimacy, I don't just mean your experience, you know, physically, I just mean your experience loving and being loved. So begin with your parents. If you had a sibling, if you had a friendship, um, your childhood age is that was important to you? What were you like socially growing up? What were your early romantic relationships like? And so they start talking about every monumental experience they've had, loving or being loved by others. And once you get to whatever it is their present day issue is, it's usually so simple to see a natural arc there um, or to find like a, a fracture story or a point of origin. And I think for a lot of people, even hearing themselves retell these stories out loud, they start to detangle their own mysteries in their mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And sorry, I'm just when they are processing that, like, I would imagine a lot of people find trauma from that, depending on the scenario. So how do you sort of help yeah. them through that? I've never had somebody have like a traumatic breakdown or, or stress or, or message me afterwards and say like, reliving those experiences was really difficult. I don't necessarily fo- I, I Yeah, I'm not... I haven't had that experience in that way. I think it's just more matter of fact and just going through like a history, like, like a timeline of it. Um, and the the primary goal here is to understand self. I think a lot of self-help in general or therapy or whatever you do, the best ahas come from self. And so I think as somebody who facilitates helping others, the greatest thing you could do is give people a platform to talk and to hear themselves and to come up with those moments on their own. Um, and that's where the true power comes from. So for whatever reason, I think people tend to be in a position of power when they're in that storyteller role and they're sharing information. Um, but I, yeah, I should definitely check in with people and say it's afterwards bringing up certain things for them was difficult. No. And sorry, I didn't mean to, uh, to infer that what I guess what I was more trying to say was that people kind of can realize in looking back that certain things were more traumatic than maybe they, they recognize recognized at the time and so I don't mean that to be like the session itself was traumatic I mean just like when you look back you're like oh this makes so much sense and if you and if you see it from that lens of looking backwards that it um, gives them way more perspective on what they have actually overcome and and processed in their life yeah I, I totally agree with that I just I personally feel like Feelings of anger or resentment or frustration, just angst, are really rooted in the lack of understanding. Like if I don't get, if I get a piece of Ikea furniture that I'm building, <laughs> what makes the experience so negative is if I don't know what I'm doing. You know I mean? If I just have no idea that the, I'm missing parts, I just feel really frustrated. But when you have an understanding and when you have clarity, I think you can be disappointed. You can be in a space of forgiveness. You can be even in a space of like, wow, like there's there's anger there, but I understand. Um, so I, I don't know if understanding and, and trauma are necessarily adjacent to each other. I would think that, that that's probably on your way out of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that for myself, unpacking things from my past where I had that light bulb moment, that for me, those, those were relief moments of relief um, and moments of personal strength. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things, so we talk a lot about stress on the podcast and how stress affects every different area of your life. So stress and sex, like I know it can definitely change our libidos, but do you sort of see any other kind of knock-on effect that particularly women experiencing chronic stress, how it affects their stress, uh, how it affects their sex life? 
I mean, absolutely. Like, I'm working right now with this brand about HSDD, which is a hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And it's a scientific explanation as to why some people just don't feel like they're ever in the mood. And similar to erectile dysfunction, there is a wealth of different reasons that that can happen. The majority of people tend to go with mental, right? Like, but in truth, even erectile dysfunction, only 20% maximum, 10 to 20% of erectile dysfunction is mental. The other 80% is physical, just that your body is not producing the right hormones. You're not lubricating in the exact same way. Your neurons are not firing off. You're not getting that dopamine um, hit that makes your risk and rewards set of your brain light up. So a lot of it can be dietary. It can be uh, health. It could be also a precursor to some other deeper health issue that you aren't being made aware of. And our body has really interesting ways of saying, hey, something is wrong. And that might be one of them for you. And so I think it's also giving yourself grace of like, if I don't feel this way, um, that might be my body's way of trying to communicate with me. And I should be listening on a variety of different planes. Because unfortunately, our body does not speak English. <laughs> when something is wrong with us, we just don't know. He doesn't really say like, hey, or left leg, we've got a little lump in there. It's kind of messing things up, right? Uh, we have to go through a process of elimination to understanding why we don't feel well. But even that process, again, is kind of like going towards enlightenment, towards understanding. And even through that, you can find a lot of stress relief. And if you give yourself grace during that period, like bodies aren't perfect. People aren't perfect. Nothing works perfectly. Your phone doesn't work perfectly. Like I have programs that freeze all the time. I have things that crash. Like it's just not meant to function at 100% all the time. And so when our bodies aren't, instead of feeling betrayed by it, we should be like, it's incredible to me. You ever like go outside and you're driving, you're like, how are there not more car accidents? Yeah. Like, it's such a, you know, it should be so easy for us to be constantly crashing and burning, breaking limbs, getting hurt, having heart attacks. And yet like we're really sustainable. And so in moments where things aren't working perfectly, be like, well, of course, I mean, you've done such a great job for so long, something is bound to fail. And if you can approach yourself with that lens with a bit of self-care understanding versus like, what was me? Why is this happening? I feel like you could uncover a lot in the process of that. Yeah. So in, in what you're saying about body is not working perfectly, I wanted to talk a little bit about body dysmorphia. Because I know that, so I have had two children and I, I can see Congratulations. body. Oh, thank you. Um, I can How see. How old are your kids? They're three and a half and thirteen months, so they keep oh, me beautiful. busy. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but I can definitely see how. I mean, it's a very common topic, right? Like women's sex lives after having babies, and I think part of it is that body dysmorphia and what we see and what we experience is just—it's not what it was. Or I know when I look in the mirror, it's just not the what I see in my head or what I feel is not what is uh, depicted in the mirror, but men also experience body dysmorphia. We experience it in other different ways. How do you sort of talk people through getting around that or out of your heads and back into your body? I, I would say change the channels wherever you possibly can, like reprogram what it is that you take in what's in your zeitgeist, right? Like, what is the healthiest thing to do for yourself when you're in a, pl a place of fragility or vulnerability is to incubate to some capacity, right? If you're sick, you stay in bed for a while. Um, if you're not feeling well, you stay around people who you feel safe. And if your self-confidence is shattered because of something that's very natural, I mean, at the end of the day, women from the beginning of time have felt this way, right? It's a massive change to your body. It's really, really big differences. It's a massive change to your hormones as well, too. So in addition to the fact that you're looking and seeing something different, 
you're getting completely different like drugs internally that are making you feel different as well too. And so again, giving yourself grace to be like, of course I feel like shit. Of course I'm not happy right now. Or of course I feel disappointed in my body. Like look at all the messages I've gotten for my entire lifetime up until this point. Um, look at the way that my body has changed even from my own vantage point and also keeping into account the fact that I'm getting way less progesterone than I used to be getting a couple months ago. That was keeping me leveled out uh, mood wise. And so maybe just unfollowing a couple of accounts on Instagram, <laughs> um, watching the TV shows or the movies that you watch, like put images in front of you that celebrate and validate you as you are. Um, when you do that, I think even from a standpoint, like you have to f- develop what your religious beliefs are before you start investigating other religions. You have to develop what it is that like your ideals or morals of the world are before you start integrating with other groups of life. Like you have to know where your home base is. You have to feel good in having a solid foundation. So sometimes we have to go back in the house and incubate for a while and just like let ourselves get better, recuperate, feel better, feel confident before we go out into the world and ingest all these images. And of course you can't control everything because there's billboards and there's movies and et cetera, et cetera. But whatever is in your control, like if you know that you open Instagram once an hour just to scroll, when you do scroll, it should be images that make you feel validated and make you feel beautiful. And that might be something that you have to do for six months. Or maybe you create a Finsta where only on your uh, alternate Instagram account are people who are just like you going through what you've gone through or celebrating a body that looks like yours. I think that's really critical what you're saying of going inwards, because I think a lot of us build that foundation by looking out. And so if we can, like you're saying, incubate, go in, figure that out for ourselves without it being ugh, words, Victoria today, without it being informed by the outside first, I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think what the problem a lot of people do, I mean, problem is the wrong word, because I mean, there's no one right way to live. But some people incubate and stay there, right? Yeah. You'll see that with people where like they find their community or like their given group, and then they don't venture outside of that. And we don't get to learn from each other. So I do want to encourage people like, yes, like find community, find like minds, but then also challenge yourself to be in unexpected places because, you know, that's how we change the mass narrative. That's how we learn from each other. And if niche communities are only sticking to themselves then we don't get the benefit of learning from them. And so we're slowly starting to see the world open up and we're starting to see different body types, different perspectives, different races and unexpected stories sort of creep into like the, the, the general pop culture media. So I am not encouraging people like stick with your own kind. Yeah, like, yeah. It's not that it's just, but for a period of time that that might be the healthiest thing for you. But I think it's like, I think what you're saying is figure out your values, right? Like figure out what's important to you so that you can then take in that other information and process it with your lens kind of thing. Yeah. It's all just basic too. Like there's this great Ted talk um, about the supermodel who talked about like, the value of beauty. I can't recall what it was titled. Um, but she was just saying she's like a tall white woman and she opened up by saying, I'm the beneficiary of hundreds of years of marketing, meaning she gets to be beautiful because for hundreds of years we have marketed her look as beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allowed her to walk into the room and feel like I am beautiful because I'm justifiably proven as beautiful in every TV show that I watch, every magazine that I open. And there's just something different about the way that you stand when you know that you are supposed to be in that. I always say to people, like, shiny things 
not only like capture the eye, but they expect to be captured. Like a shiny thing walks into the room, like people look like I'm fucking shiny. So you have to validate yourself in some capacity to do good marketing for you that you look at yourself like I'm shiny. Like I've seen people like me put in positions to be sexualized and in a positive way that they actually invite that attention. They feel good about it. I've seen people like me cast as the lead role in movies, the lead role, the lead love story uh, as the hot girl. So you, that's part of the incubation too, of just giving yourself that mojo. Like not nah, like I'm hot. I've seen me. I've seen versions of me be called hot. So I know that I look like that. So I'm hot too. Well, and it ties into like, I was just, uh, I haven't finished reading it, but very quickly, the first uh, chapter of the prologue of your book and like, Victoria, that's where how could you not have finished reading the book? That is, you know what I mean? I'm, Rule I'm number on one. Because I'm sleep deprived from two children. Yes. <laughs> but uh, the thing that I you notice in the very first, in the prologue is like, you are giving these people their mojo through some simple steps. So it's not something that what I found really encouraging is it's not something we're born with necessarily. It's something that you can develop. A hundred percent. I was actually saying this yesterday on my live because uh, my book was chosen as one of Apple's better best books of July. And thank you. I was just saying that my story is not the just story. You know, and some people are like, just be yourself. Just put yourself out there. Even, you know what I mean? Like, just try your best. I have always had to go the extra mile. Like, just never gives me the results that I'm looking for. I've always had to do extra research extra practice, just learn more things than the average person. I have to be a little bit better um, than the person who's standing next to me. That's just been my story across the board. It's been my story in love. Um, It's never been like, it's just, just, I just met the right guy. I just went out one day and all of a sudden it was like, no, I had to strategically decide who I wanted to be, decide where I wanted to hang out, um, meet the right kind of people, regulate my emotions, put my best self out there, challenge myself to be better, try different techniques, remind myself that I'm seductive. Like there's so many things I had to do to get to a space where I'm really, really proud of not just my love life, but my life overall. And so that's what the book is for. It's for the person who's like, okay, I know I'm supposed to just be myself. I know I'm supposed to like, you know, just put myself on the market, but I'm not getting results. What's up? I'm not getting the feedback that I'm looking for. So is something wrong with me? It's just like, no, maybe it's just, you don't know how to put the best you out there. Or maybe you haven't put yourself in a position to be your best self. I was watching this talk and there was this doctor who he was saying, I just think it's so despicable that people like give people these strategies for dating or tell people that they have to show up as anyone other than themselves. Like the truest form of dating is to step into your authentic space and just be you and see who comes back. I was like, that's really beautiful advice coming from a hot white cis doctor, Mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah, sure. Just show up as you, sir, because historically you have been enough and you have been the object of desire. We all want a hot white male doctor in our lives. And so you just showing up as yourselves might, might actually do the trick. But for a lot of other people, that's just maybe not their story. Um, and that's who this book was written for. It was written for people like me, whom maybe were just not naturally included in the like desirable category, but had to put the work in and were able to find their space and find their niche. Oh, I love it. I'm so excited for it. So 
I'm sure you are asked this question all the time, but I also know my listeners will want to hear the answer to it. <laughs> what are some common tips or first steps for us to start having better sex? Oh, better sex. I mean, the, the cliche answer here is it starts with yourself. Yeah. You know, it starts with you knowing your body inside and out, figuring out what you like. It's the same thing. You know, let's be honest with you. Let's just say copy and paste and let's put cooking in place. If you want to be a better cook, you have to start watching TV shows that cooking is depicted. You may have to enlist the help of an expert, go to a class. You have to buy books. You have to read it. And you have to practice in low-risk environments. I think what happens with sex and relationships is that, you know, even the game of desire, like one, it's five different phases. And it's like phase one is no. Know yourself inside and out. Know who you are. Know who you aren't. Know what you like. Um, and then also gain the language to communicate that to others. Phase two is change. So now that you know yourself, are there certain elements about the persona you've taken on or the habits that you have now like encapsulated in your version of self that just aren't working for you that you actually have to change? And then phase three is to learn. So now that you know yourself and now that you know what you have to start working on, what can you start filling yourself up with? What new information, new tools, new text techniques and tricks? Because maybe you know that you love uh, masturbation in a particular way because you've played with your body to your capacity and you found something that works. But if you start reading books, you're like, wow, there's this other toy or this other position, this other technique, like open yourself up to conversations from people who have done the hours that you can benefit from, like cheat a little bit. That's what learning truly is. Like, I don't have to seek out this information myself. I can just talk to somebody who's done the work and benefit from that. And then phase four is practice. And the key component with practice is you have to practice in low risk environments. Like going back to the cooking analogy, if you're not, you've never cooked can you give me a meal right now, Victoria? What's a fancy meal that someone has to cook? Paella. <laughs> if you've never cooked paella before, Christmas dinner is probably not the first time you want to try that out. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, or a date, not the first time you want to try that out. You're going to try it out by yourself at home, get it down a couple of times, make it for lunch, for work, for yourself, maybe share it with a friend. And then eventually you get the confidence up to be like, I can share this with a group of people whose opinion I care about. Same thing with sex. Don't make the first time you're trying a brand new move in a high risk environment with someone that you're trying to impress um, or in a space that you know you're going to get vulnerable or embarrassed. A basketball player is not going to try to dunk for the first time in the fourth quarter. Yeah. And it's, sorry, I, I just uh, I got this cheat sheet uh, from you. Is this the section where your group tested out bacon and donut vaginal perfume? Yes. It's not all one <laughs> sentence. Okay. That sounds, that sounds awful. There's I, three separate ones. Okay. <laughs> I should clarify that. Bacon perfume, donut perfume, okay, okay. and vaginal copulence. <laughs> Got it. Because I was like, that would be a whole lot of smells going on down there. Yeah. It's actually funny because in practice, one of the things I added into practice is that we were going out to test out like all the things that we had learned, like the S posture, like how to flirt, uh, how to tune your seductive voice, how to be seductive based on like knowing how to ask people the right questions and get into like their higher self. And so they were supposed to go out and practice all of these, but I just added on these fun experiments. So when they were approaching people, they didn't feel like, oh my God, I'm putting myself out there. They felt like, oh, I'm just testing out this technique to see if it'll work or not. 
And so we did this thing where we all put on different perfumes. The real point of this exercise was to get them comfortable approaching other people. Mm -hmm. Um, But we gave the excuse of, we had to go up to people and ask them, can you smell all of us and say, which one you think is the most enticing scent? We didn't have vaginal cocktails for that one. That was an experiment (laughs) of its own. Uh, But laundry scent was like the drastic uh, victor in that one. But we were all in the car at one point, and it was laundry, perfume, bacon, and donut smells. And it was like the most disgusting thing ever. I just like all the windows were down. My face was out the side like Ace Ventura. Um, So, yes, you were right. In combination, they are awful. (laughs) Separately, they can all be great. Yeah. One of the things I was realizing when I was looking at this uh, cheat sheet and reading that first chapter was like, while I am not on the dating scene, um, I feel a lot of these things are going to be still helpful for me because, you know, every phase you sort of go through, like, you know, having kids, like it's a whole different change to your relationship. And I was like, man, maybe I need to like up my date night and figure out this S curve and ask sexier questions and stuff. I was like, (laughs) these like this is I don't see this as a book for only single women or single people. No. The real truth of the matter is that the reason I'm on this planet to begin with is to inform people that becoming an expert of your own sex and love life will enhance your life in every imaginable area. And that is the truth that I found. Uh, One of the things I talk about in the books, one of my favorite books is David Brooks, The Social Animal. And in that, he talks about the studied recipe of happiness and two thirds of the recipe of what makes up a happy life have to do with our intimate connections, the quality of our family, our friendships, and of course, of our our love lives as well. So that means that connecting with people is like the biggest piece of the puzzle to ensuring that your time on this planet is joyful. And yet we do not learn about that at all. Mm -hmm. We don't learn how to do it, how to solve problems when it goes wrong, how to manage a loss, um, how to celebrate in a healthy way when you get a new love because love is addictive. And so we have to learn how to manage our emotions around that. So we don't learn those things. And that is like the massive educational flaw that I'm trying to fix with my work. So while I think on the surface, it's about sex or it's about dating or it's about finding the love of your life. In truth, it's about loving your life, period. It's getting to a space where you feel like you are apt in the most important part of your life or majority of people's lives. Because Of course, some people are asexual or are avoidantly attached and don't really find joy in connections in the same way. But the vast majority of people, um, the bulk of your joy is going to come from the quality of your close, intimate connections. Okay, we need a mic drop right there. (laughs) No, you're so right. You're so right. Okay. Well, as a mom, no one knows this better than you. Like, I'm sure that they're 90% of your joy. Well, also my frustration, but yes, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, tantruming toddlers is a whole different thing. But it's also interesting because it's taught me a lot about relationships and connection. Like you're saying, like very much that um, the energy I bring is energy that I will receive in return. And like if I, Ooh, I love that. Well, because if I start getting frustrated at my toddler and yelling, he's going to yell back. And then this is really crystallized for me lately of like, well, it's the same thing with my husband. If I come in in a sassy, bitchy attitude, like I'm not going to get the response that I'm looking for. And so it is those connections, how to like, but it starts with me. So yeah. I'll mic drop for that. Oh, that's awesome. There we go. It's It's all about simple, beautiful realization. Do you find that as somebody who puts in the work to understand people and understand 
where their triggers come from, that it's easier to apply that to children? Like, do you find yourself getting less frustrated or you're like, oh no, it's just as hard as it would be if I didn't know anything? Um, I find that actually it's almost the reverse. I'm learning more from my kids that then informs the other areas of my life because they like they will strip you down to your core uh and i i mean that as someone who had to deal with like a whole weekend of gastric vomiting and all that kind of stuff and you were just ex- you know you're exhausted you're broken down you're just wrecked but you then ha- still have to show up in a way that like mm-hmm. if it was at work i might just have a sick day and just like not show yeah. up if I, if i was stressed beyond belief i might just call it in but you still have to show up with kids. So it's, it's teaching me a lot that I apply elsewhere. It was really beautifully said. I, I really value that. It's really super cool. The gastric vomiting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Visionary. Picasso worthy. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we're going to move into, um, before we do the final five questions that I ask all of, uh, my guests, I wanted to really quickly point people to your YouTube channel. You've got so many great videos on there. Uh, we will link to it in today's show notes, but I'm curious, what is one video that you've done that you wish more people saw or that they took a second look at? Mm, I did this series, um, that was like a five part series on like love being an addiction. I think that 90% of my work would probably not exist if more people understood that we are born to bond. I think something really magical happened in maybe like the early 2000s where we started to understand food in a very different way. Like when I was growing up, again, cheese and like milk and bread were like a part of a healthy, balanced diet. And now we're like, no, 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 no. Like dessert, you know, they had like cereal, it's like a part of a healthy breakfast. Mm-hmm. And then now we know like, now, sugar is not supposed to be part of your breakfast. Like, it's not, we don't need cook, like cookie crisp as a part of a healthy breakfast. We now have this understanding of nutrition and the way that certain foods play on our brain, why we are attracted to certain foods. And we look at it less like we eat what we want. And now we have to make a better decision than our biology wants to make. Because if it was left up to our biology, we would make really irresponsible decisions all the time. And the same thing goes to love. You know what I mean? Like, we have a lot of really outdated modules in our DNA that drives us to make not the best decisions for our health and happiness. It might make the best decisions for proximity, for immediacy, um, for whatever other priorities your biology has. That is, again, like a lot of our DNA has not caught up to the fact that we live in like a a post caveman society. The reason why, again, we're driven to eat so many calories still, or we're attracted to sweet foods or we gorge is because we still think we have to save up for winter. And it's like, nah, bro, like, McDonald's will be open all the time. Like we don't need to have that extra Big Mac or whatever it is. So I just would love for more people to have a scientific approach to their love life and not from a standpoint of like making it like, you know, super like mathematical, but just understanding again that your body is doing a lot that you're not aware of. Your body is keeping you afloat right now without you having to do anything. And so understand that your love life is also part of that automated system. And that means you have to start making rational choices. You can't just say, well, it feels good, so I do it. Or if I think about this person, that must mean we're meant to be. Nah, it says it probably just means you're addicted. And so the five-part series that I did was just really explaining how love works in the brain and why sex can compound um, an attraction to someone that you logically know is not even the best fit for you. Uh, But through that bonding activity, you may find yourself even more intertwined with somebody who to begin with, you probably shouldn't have even gone to like coffee with. Yeah. 
Definitely. It's reminding you're going to hate this comparison, but I have a slight uh, guilty obsession with The Bachelor, as do millions of other people. And um, I know there are so many issues with it, um, but it's And I remind- will never, I love a comparison. I love metaphors, so give it to me. But it's reminding me of how they always, always, like, keep this person that they should not for the longest time. And you're you're right. It's like, it's, you can tell it is an addiction and a, and a, and they know it's not right. And you can see it like you're watching it like a fly on the wall. And it's just really fascinating to see. So we will link to your uh, five part video series on that. So people should check that out. Okay. Thank you very much. So the five questions I ask all of my guests, the first one is what are some of the things or the projects that get you really fired up in a good way? I love any entry point projects. Um, I really like my goal. It's amazing to talk to people like yourself, Victoria, who've done the work and who are invested in the space and who are already wellness gurus. But when I talk to somebody who's like, I've never thought about applying a strategy to my love life or to, I've never thought about learning about sex. I just thought you're supposed to just figure it out as you go. Any project that gets the average person who has never thought that being again, my own version of an expert can massively change my life. That's the person that I, I'm always excited to reach. And so entry point projects um, are my favorite. Awesome. What's the most inspiring book that you've read in the past few years? Holy shit. This is an easy answer for me. Robert Greene, The Laws of Human Nature, is like the most incredible book. It's the most, if it's just like, oh, it's so, I, I don't know Robert Greene's personal life. And so sometimes you vouch for someone, like I don't know what he has in his personal time. But as a writer and as a teacher, he's just been so impactful to me. And that book just explains I'm a big fan of like the why, you know, that the unexamined life is not worth living. That Aristotle quote really speaks to me. So I just like to know why things are the way they are. Why are we driven to make certain decisions? And that book literally breaks down like everything from birth to death. And it's so thick. Uh, It took me months to finish reading, but I at some point should read it again because it was just incredible. Awesome. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, So what are the things that tend to stress you out? And then what are your go-to strategies for handling stress? I am one of those like super privileged people where all my stress, I'm like, shut up, girl. Like I just, I, uh, I'm also new to this space too, because I am from Canada. And so for my first few years, if you watch my YouTube channel, you'll go through this journey with me. I was just like very, very thin, uh, because of, you know, poverty. Uh, I, I wasn't <laughs> like really like fully legally in the country. And so I always had this like look over my shoulder. And when you're vulnerable like that, um, you attract a lot of not so healthy people. And so my early, you know, in 2015, my concerns were like, I'm sick all the time because I'm really not eating enough. I'm always late on rent. And thank God that I was subleasing because that person really couldn't do much legally. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's a terrible thing to say out loud, but I was always late on rent. I was really, really sick. I was really, really thin. I was barely making ends meet. And my visa was running up in the country. And the person who was my sponsor into the country uh, had turned on me in a way where it made it very, they started making threats about deportation. Like those were my stresses in like 2015. And now in 2019, I stress about like, is my stuff getting enough views? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. is this getting enough likes? Is, is my book going to sell enough? Like, it's not about, am I going to get the bare minimum? It's like, am I going to get the maximum output? And so whenever I do have moments of stress, I just try to really ground myself in like older content. Like you are your own dream come true. And this is an incredible stretch of time that you're in. You know, I don't have kids yet. And so 
that's also a big part of it. Like a stress for you is watching your kid go through gastric vomiting, <laughs> um, where you're also, it's terror. Cause even though you know that they're going to be fine because kids get sick, there's also a part of you that's like, I'm watching someone that I love and I can't help them in that way. And there's, that's a different type of stress, you know, and I, I'm in a stretch of time right now where I just, my family's healthy. I'm healthy. My husband is healthy. I have enough money to pay my bills. I can eat wherever I want right now. Like I just think about potential. Uh, and that's just such a gift. Yeah. But it's also like, I, I don't want to minimize that, right? Because perceived stress, like it's what you're experiencing, right? It may not be the, um, like you're saying, the actual needs, shelter, food, water, all that kind of stuff, but it is still important to you. It is still important to me, but I, I think that pers- it helps me. Some people that yeah. like that whole, like people in Ethiopia haven't eaten a meal, but that doesn't yeah. work for them. They're like, I don't care. I still like haven't gotten to do X and that yeah. really, really bothers me. But for me, that perspective is a great de-stressor because I also can gamify my experience right now. And the reason why the book is called The Game of Desire is because like you really should have fun with this. Like love should be a healthy addition to your life, a fun, positive addition, an opportunity to get to know yourself better while getting to know others in a joyful exchange because you've put the work in and you're only choosing partners who even if they aren't the one, um, they're still a good selection for you. Yeah. And so for me, when I'm in stressful situations, perspective and just kind of gamifying it where it's like, you know, just play, see win or lose or draw, like you're still going to come out of this alive. And that's what's most important. Yeah. What's the best life lesson that you've learned or advice that you've been given? Give me yours. And I'll try and think about this as you talk, Victoria. Okay. The most, the reason the podcast is called Girl Tries Life is because for me, the most important thing was to try. Uh, When I was going through really deep depression or incredibly stressful periods of my life, as long as I could get up and try, that made all the difference. It didn't mean I it succeeded. It didn't mean it went well. It meant that I gave a shit and I made some effort. And so that's been my best life lesson is no matter what I'm going through is just to try. Honestly, yes. I was going to say, like, I don't have the exact quote for this, but um, like the mark of a healthy life is like discipline, right? It's like choosing not just what's good for you in the moment, but what's good for you overall. And prioritizing that. I think trying is just a big part of it because sometimes when we're in our deepest hour, all we want to do is just incubate, sit down, be alone, watch Netflix. We just want to distract ourselves from the pain of the world and what we're experiencing. But you have to make that decision of like, it's not about what's going to make me feel good in this moment. And sometimes it is, sometimes we need those breaks, but Mm -hmm. ultimately like you, you do have a responsibility to yourself to go the extra mile, to make the decision that's one point past what feels most comfortable to you. So I think that's just a version of what you just said. I'm going to go. My new favorite quote for life is Shan tries life. I like Make it into a podcast. I'm going to brand it. It's going to be a book. Look out for that. There summer 2025. Go. Perfect. So my final question, Shan, is what does it mean to you to live your best life? Living your best life is where a life where your health and happiness is prioritized without you impinging on the health and happiness of others. When you know that like you're in flow and your body feels good and there's joyful moments, you know, health, happiness is a choice every single day. It's not a given. I'm not saying that like you get to the land of milk and honey, but you can make the the choice of happiness. And also too, that whatever it is that brings you those things doesn't impinge on the health and happiness of others. And that also means living a sustainable life, living a responsible life that takes into account the planet, uh, takes into account the, the health of others. And so 
I, I, I think I'd like to live that way and I probably could do a better job every day, but that is my daily challenge. But you're trying. I'm trying. Shan tries life. There I told you, you guys. Look out for it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. No, thank you so much for having me. This is so wonderful. Shout out to all of Canada because, of course, they're listening, every person in Canada. Yep. And we both love you dearly. We really do.